This episode of How I Made It Happen is brought to you by Papier. Papier is the stationery brand designed for paper people, those who love to put their ideas down on paper, big or small, or organize their days in a diary rather than on their phone. Papier's unique collection is created in collaboration with artists and designers, such as Matilda Goad, through to fashion brands such as Mother of Pearl and Desmond and Dempsey. Papier has recently added some new desk companions. Weekly desk pads and notepads join their best-selling collection of notebooks and productivity planners, which can all be personalised with your name. Discover Papier's stationery collection at papier.com. And if you use the code How I Made It Happen at checkout, you can receive a 15% discount on your first order. Thank you to Papier for supporting this podcast. Hello, and welcome to How I Made It Happen, a weekly podcast hosted by me, Elizabeth Agabi. On this podcast, I speak to women who are entrepreneurs, innovators, and game changers. I dive deep into conversation with them to understand how they've taken their ideas and made them a reality. If you're new here, here's a little introduction about me. I'm the founder of For Working Ladies, a platform for entrepreneurial thinking women. I'm also the author of the newly published book, Side Hustle in Progress, a practical guide to kickstarting your business. In this book, I share everything you need to know as you embark on your own journey of turning your ideas into reality. From how to get ideas to how to market your business, I cover it all. If you'd like to purchase a copy, the link is in the show notes and it can also be purchased at all bookstores. This week, I'm joined by Amy Thompson, an incredibly inspiring entrepreneur and role model whose work I hugely respect. I met Amy in 2018 at a networking event in which she recommended the book Grits. And since then, it's been a book that I highly recommend to all to read. It's one that has been really impactful in my life. So I'm really excited to have her on the show discussing her journey. Amy started her first business at age 23 in 2011, a communications company working with brands such as Nike and Microsoft. In 2016, after experiencing severe burnout from the result of working long hours and traveling for work, Amy's period stopped, but she still continued to work. Until one day, she made the decision to prioritize her health. Later that year, she decided to sell the business and take a break. Whilst on her break, she began working on how she could solve the problem of stress, impacting women's hormones, health and happiness. This is how Moody Month was born a tech company that uses data ethically to help women connect with the science of their bodies and personalize the experience for their daily health and wellness needs. She is also the author of Moody, a 21st century hormone guide which was published earlier this year with Viking Publishing. In this guide, Amy shares the research and science behind how our hormones work for 21st century survival how understanding them can help you build better and healthier routines, and why the systems and cycles inside us are an invisible but powerful force. Here is Amy Thompson. Moody is personalized wellness, um, which is tailored to the phases of your hormone cycle. That is about understanding how A, your hormones affect your mental, physical health, and B, how we use wellness, um, whether that be diet, exercise, or mindfulness, to optimize our everyday health and well-being by using 
hormonal science as the foundation point for organizing our, our kind of daily routines. So Moody is the technology that allows you to organize your daily routines. It allows you to make recommendations of the things that we know from a scientific perspective can support those kind of changes. And then also really crucially, it allows you to create a kind of daily check-in with yourself, which allows you to log, understand and track because the reality is that every woman is slightly different and so for us what we wanted to build was a tool which gives you information it helps you understand yourself but it also allows you to personalize the experience by logging and tracking from the perspective of a safe and you know an interactive system and tool because technology really should be about making our lives easier or quicker and more efficient the fact that we can get, you know, an Uber anywhere or order food from anywhere in the world in under a half an hour. And yet we have no real understanding of the baseline information about our overall mental physical health from the perspective of science. So it started from a place of realization. It was almost like I pulled one string and I realized this was a huge, huge issue affecting almost you know, everyone. Uh, hormones are not exclusive to women, but they've been almost socially branded as a female thing. And the reason that we called it moody was everyone is moody and women have been continually called moody because of their hormones. And actually that should be a badge of honor. We should be able to say, yeah, I'm feeling moody today and I'm going to understand why. Not I'm feeling moody and I need to change that. Being moody is not a benchmark of disappointment failure being moody is part of being human and actually understanding the science behind how our emotional physical health works is the first way for us to start to unlock opportunity optimization and productivity so for me what happened was I burnt out um like many women <laughs> uh you know you push yourself hard you're under a huge amount of pressure you are under a huge amount of pressure to prove a point to prove yourself you know working in industries that are not set up for your success working in a world that's not set up for your success and it's hard and often we're not given the tools to help understand how our body is an asset and our mind is an asset not something to control or suppress so my burnout one of the major symptoms was my period stopping which when you understand that you're menstrual cycle is connected to your stress cycles and connected to your sleep cycle and connected to your metabolism cycle because they're all hormonal you start to then understand that your body is a system that has these cycles that actually when you start to tune into them not to control them but to understand them you can then optimize them so there seemed to be this huge shift in terms of people wanting technologies to track wellness but that wellness tracking was very, very focused on how to run the fastest mile, how to control your weight, you know, all the things that, you know, the wellness industry for decades has been kind of designed to do. Whereas actually, we wanted to build technology for women that help them be the best versions of themselves. And actually understanding how we deploy the education of hormonal health at scale. And that's technology, right? The book is also important because actually I realized when we were building the tech, there was so much research that had gone into it in terms of 
you know, the not just endocrinology, which is the science of hormones, but also the science, neuroscience, psychology, you know, the, the understanding of all these different kind of experiences as one central system that really we should be learning in school. I was just about to say that. And I was just saying it to my friend the other day because I mentioned um, PCOS because I had to look into it. And she said, oh, a year ago, I didn't know what that was. And I said, but so many women experience it. So why are we all just learning what it is? Why don't we learn this stuff in school since women's health is so important? But it seems like it, you know, it's not important to, you know, those who are in, let's say, control or those like the GPs and stuff and the government. So it's so interesting what you're building out. I am your target audience. So what I would say, though, is that sometimes you feel intimidated with all this information. So how have you tried to connect with the woman who doesn't know about this information and it might seem a bit like an overload? How have you tried to simplify it? And do you get that experience once you come onto the app? Yeah, so that's why we built an app first and then the book is a secondary feature because I think you're right I think we're all reading endless amounts of information listening to endless podcasts and actually technology is about making it very easy for somebody to understand that they don't have to have all the information at once but how do you actually apply this information in real time how do you take this science and make it applicable to your ability to to understand but also live with a routine so the tool and the app is designed around a really simple feature which is the daily check-in which gives you almost like a weather forecast every day of where you might be at the more you log the more it reflects the patterns from previous months back to you but even if you don't log the ability for actually you to be able to connect with an understanding that there are cycles, there are systems happening across metabolism and sleep. The kind of future vision is that we make Moody even more and more accurate as we build out the platform to integrate wider data. But the main thing for us is being able to build a platform where it's safe. So all the data is anonymized. It's a safe space for women to share. We're never selling that to brands. We're never selling that data. It's a safe space for people to log. It's all encrypted and anonymized. So the journaling feature is the other really, really key feature. So if you use the app, you'll understand it's the onboarding, you put in some information, and then it gives you a baseline. And really, it's about building that morning routine. So understanding when you check in, much like you go to check the weather, and you pack an umbrella. And if it doesn't rain, great, but at least you know the chances of rain. (laughs) And really, that's where we wanted to start. And, you know, you mentioned PCOS or uh, PCOS. And it's like, That is a really important thing to track moods and symptoms. And on a basic level, there was no technology when I was looking at this space that allowed you very simply to just track the key themes that were happening in your experience on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. So if you reduce Moody down to a very simple thing, it's a daily tracking tool for women, which then connects those logs with things that you could do to address that consistent pattern. Yeah, so it's customized. It's not just like general information, but it's customized and tailored to your own experience, which I think is perfect. So I want to kind of go back a bit. So before you started Moody, you had started a communications agency called Scene. 
I know you kind of stepped back from Scene to start Moody. So could you tell us about the journey of um, starting Scene and how you came to the realisation that you need to step back and focus on something around women's health? So I think everyone's career is a series of sliding doors moments, right? A kind of series of experiences and happenings and uh interactions mostly meeting people and network um so we're seeing the first thing was that I was working in PR looking at the very early stage so this was in 2011 and for me that was just before the social media boom as it were with Instagram hadn't existed we were looking at kind of how you quantify value so what I realized was there was a huge opportunity to work with brands in terms of not just understanding social media in terms of deployment of content, but actually merging kind of live experience with how you amplify, build audiences, and then also quantify value. So it was a really simple, but very innovative at the time format, which now is not that innovative. (laughs) This was, you know, 2011. So then when Instagram kind of landed, you know, the business really took off because social media was this huge audience acquisition tool in a way which wasn't just platforms like Facebook to put ads on. There was a whole kind of strategy and, and deployment strategy of how you both build audiences in real world, but also build audiences in the digital world. Um, and those experiences were really crucial to that. So for us, the big kind of game changer was beginning to work with Nike. So Nike was a huge client that we started working with in 2012. Uh, That for me was very exciting. As you can imagine, it took us to a completely different stratosphere in terms of the business. Um, And as a brand, they're an incredibly innovative and very exciting brand to work with. One of the things that opened my eyes, though, to what I then went on to build was when you're a brand that's focused on apparel it's really important their technologies are amazing but I could see this huge opportunity for us to be able to understand the female experience from a hormonal perspective as a way of actually understanding a much deeper personalization journey for health and well-being and I think working with Nike in in the agency and through that kind of early stage helped really build a confidence an education and a kind of real insight into kind of how technologies in this space were being built, why they were being built. Um, but more importantly, my own journey that one of the major burnout pieces for me was ironically all the travel back and forth between Europe and the US and I wasn't taking care of my body. And it wasn't really a diagnosis by a doctor. It was actually in the end, a doctor agreed in terms of where my burnout had come from, which is essentially stress and and a lot of jet lag. So jet lag was really apparent for me because I wasn't sleeping well because I was continually on different time zones and that was having a huge impact on my hormones and ultimately led to my period stopping and what I found really surprising was being in that sliding doors moment of I have two options here (laughs) I carry on building this business and it's it's great it's making money it's profitable it's it's a good business or I do something that I really think is going to have impact and change women's lives and It took a bit of time because obviously you have to think these things through. Um, My board, when I decided to actually make that change, thought I was insane. Um, (laughs) I think in 2016, when I sold my shares, you know, that hormones weren't talked about in the mainstream. So it's not like now where people are talking about cycles. They're talking about health. They're talking about, you know, even meditation wasn't really talked about. Headspace was early doors. So I was kind of very... 
early to that conversation. And I think people thought that I'd lost my mind, actually, in the long and short of it. So that was interesting. Did you have insight into this industry that you're in? Did you have insight that it was going to boom? Or did you just decide to transition into it because of your personal experience of burning out? And knowing that there was a lack of information and resource out there for women around their health? I think any great business or great idea comes from a huge problem. And when you're confronted with a problem that you can't then avoid. So my case of burnout is actually pretty low key, right? It's not, it, I had burnout, I got over it, but I healed my body with, with health and well-being. What I became more and more aware of was just how deep this runs, not just through the lack of education, but also through the late diagnosis of PCOS endometriosis being a lot to do with people not identifying the emotional, physical symptoms associated to their conditions. So again, when looking at this market, I couldn't avoid it. And I think when you're making a decision like that, you have to make the decision on a basis of what have I, what are my risks here? And as a woman, I had some choices I had to make. And I knew if I took on this project, I was going to make some pretty big sacrifices. You don't take on a tech business like this if you're not willing to say, okay, my personal life might have to take a back seat for one. I know that there are going to be some things and some processes that I have to go through that are going to be challenging. And I was young when I started Scene. I was 23 years old. So when I sold it, I was 29. And that's really young. <laughs> I had some money that I'd made from that sale to be able to set me up and give myself this opportunity, which was a huge privilege. I had access to the doctors, to the experts because of the business that I'd owned previously. And I felt as though if I don't try this, I'm going to regret it for the rest of my life. And the problem is so systemic and such an issue that most women get to a certain point where it, they're, they're going to give up because this is just like smashing your head against a brick wall. Because not only do you need to change the consumer, as in the audience understanding from an education perspective, the way to build technology is get funding. And funding historically is, in, although they're you know, there's a lot of talk about investing early. There's a lot of risk aversion, actually. And women don't get funded. <laughs> it's or it's hard. Um, it's hard to explain to a lot of very senior VCs or funders the difference between understanding fertility and contraception from a hormone perspective and understanding mental health. Um, that's a new market, right? Especially if they're all men. Exactly. So... I knew a little bit of what I was taking on. I don't think I would have ever done it if I really knew what I was taking on. <laughs> you have to kind of, to a certain extent, blindly throw yourself into it. But I think I was privileged, fortunate, and I was in a position where I had nothing to lose. I was young. But the one thing I do think that I think is really important for people to factor in is you, if you go on a journey like this, you do sacrifice things in your personal life. You do sacrifice relationships potentially. I think that about that a lot. Like it's hard to have relationships or start relationships if your life is dominated by this kind of passion and vision and mission. Um, and I think also you're standing up in an environment where if you fail, especially in funding or even in the execution, you become part of the problem rather than part of the solution. And that's a big responsibility, but I hope 
since 2016 when this journey kind of or 2017 2018 really when it started that it's getting a little easier for women and for funding to kind of find the right people which is interesting I mean I've been trying to schedule in interviews for the podcast and then I've, you know, the response has been, I'm currently fundraising. And I'm like, oh, that's amazing because there's literally only how many percent of us raising funding. Um, so in as much as that it's changing, it's still a really small percentage of women, which is crazy. But when you first started your business, you were 23. And I don't think there were that many entrepreneurs then. And even those that were entrepreneurs, they kind of seem like the crazy people because everyone was looking for like a corporate job um, and was looking to maybe get into consulting or, you know, do the traditional career. But now entrepreneurship appears very sexy and glamorous. And we know it's not that. You've literally just explained that you have to sacrifice, you know, relationships at times and so many different things. What do you think has created the shift in perception around entrepreneurship what do you think has made it seem more glamorous so I think there's been a few factors that have contributed to the glamorization of entrepreneurship I think there is this kind of rock star style lifestyle idea that is associated to it um which is a huge misconception I think if you look at any successful founder you often find that their lifestyle is actually pretty regimented and and very what's the word uh quite quite um unfun actually <laughs> um however not to kind of put people off I think that yeah there's this kind of rock star lifestyle thing I think that there is also a sense of freedom like people valuing their own time valuing their own ideas wanting to kind of have their own you know their own creative outputs and and I think that's that's a more positive end of the spectrum I think that the reality is that what people are searching for is more time value and creativity in their work and more passion I think what is dangerous about this idea of everyone starting businesses is not because people shouldn't follow their ideas and rightly there should be more opportunity for a much more diverse subset of people to be able to address these huge systemic problems that we're seeing but also understanding the mental health challenges understanding what sacrifices you're going to make and not putting yourself in a position where you're taking so many financial risks that you are under so much stress that you actually can't succeed I think that there's not enough conversation around the financial implications of starting a business financial risk I've taken huge financial risk in starting this business remortgaging house like you know there's been times where and these were all things that I was willing to do because I had removed every function of my life I was completely single solo I could make these choices but I think that there's an important factor of where your values and what you want from life. Like that's not for everyone and rightly so. So I think being able to assess what drives you, what makes you feel happy and actually remembering that sometimes it's really nice to be part of a team where the buck doesn't stop with you. There is a huge amount of this kind of misunderstanding around kind of business as this thing where you get to kind of swan around doing whatever you want to do and there are a few added values you know I had the privilege of being able to live where I wanted to live that was one of the added values but that came much later in the journey and so yeah you really evaluating your financial risk your your own position 
and doing something because you believe in it, not because you've seen someone else do something and you think, I want that lifestyle. Because more often than not, the lifestyle that's being presented, this kind of rock star image, it's not reality. Everyone's presenting a reality of what they want their life to look like. Yeah. And it's literally just a few seconds of someone's life that you see here and there in a picture or in an article or on a podcast. Uh, It's not the full picture. Um, And it's interesting because, you know, you were saying that um, part of the burnout was from your jet lag and from all the traveling. And when people hear that, they think, oh, yeah, so exciting. You get to travel as an entrepreneur, not knowing that, you know, it actually has effects on your body and effects on how you show up as a founder. So it there's a lot of stress attached to it. And this isn't to put anyone off, but, you know, it's just the realities of what it is to have your own business and especially one that's fast growing. Um, Did you at any point when you had to step back from scene feel like there was a sense of failure? Because, you know, in the age where we're consistently announcing all our next steps, some people tend to not want to announce when they're pivoting or Just feel this sense that, you know, people are going to think, what am I doing with my life? And I remember when I left my job and someone said, oh, are you going to announce it? And I just thought, why? I don't have to. I'm like, literally, I've made this change for myself. It's no one's business. Um, I'm going to be focusing on X, Y, Z, and I don't need to announce my plans to the world. But did you ever feel this sense of, oh, I failed. I'm, you know, I'm changing now to a different direction. So I... I have crazy imposter syndrome a lot because I went into an industry that was very different, surrounded by experts, surrounded by doctors, surrounded by the people that really I wanted to bring together. And I wanted to be the facilitator essentially of this technology because I could, because they could continue to be doctors and academics and they could continue to practice nutrition. And I could essentially be the custodian of this idea to be able to execute the technology and build what needs to happen at scale. I think that as a role is is really important. And a lot of people go into technology in that way. I think that my experience gave me trust because I had some experience in business before, but there have been so many moments where when you're continually told that you're mad and continually told that this is never going to be something women want, this is not important. This is something that like, actually, if it was relevant, it would have been done already. And then you realize that actually your motivation and your sense of failure comes from essentially just how do you stay self-motivated and how do you maintain your motivation? So I felt very proud of what I'd built as seen, but I felt like at the time when I actually left, I felt as though it was a very clear stepping stone to something else. And I think at any point, whether it be a pivot or whether it be a change in career, get comfortable with the decisions you're making and take the time to get comfortable with it. And I also gave myself options. So there were options to go and build Moody. There were options to go and go and work for a brand and work for a for a business. I think the decision was, I am burnt out, I am unhappy, and I am not feeling fulfilled. How do I solve those problems? And I felt Moody was a route. I think that when you put things out and you give yourself options, you don't go so focused down one route. The kind of natural progression and natural lean towards which option is the right thing for you will lead you down that path but when you're down that path the inevitable failures will catch you out and it it really is about trusting yourself trusting your decision making which is why I mention 
come to any decision from the perspective of what I want, why am I doing this? Not from the perspective of I've seen that lifestyle, I want a piece of that pie. Because the reality is, if you're going after something that someone else has and you want it because they've done it, you're not actually tuning into what are the things that I'm meant to be doing and how do I let those things kind of essentially naturally play out whether it be being getting a job offer and realizing that's the first thing that comes into your kind of remit or whether it be people coming to you and saying yeah this is a really great idea you should raise money trying to raise some money and realizing there was an opportunity and actually that taking me down that path but the failures have come in my lack of trust in myself and my decision making the failures have come in realizing why it doesn't exist in that the world really isn't set up to help people better understand their health and well-being it's set up to prescribe and the history of health and well-being and health generally has set a lot of women up across the board to fail particularly anyone I mean when you start to then drill down into socioeconomic and also kind of you know race as well and how you realize that we've built a sexist racist society that sets people up for failure because we create stressful environments for those people just by the world that's created. So just by those scenarios, we're already creating an unfair system. And when you start to go into something where you see a little bit behind the curtain of, of the big money and why that's the case, it's it's hard. And the failure comes because you realize that you feel overwhelmed. And so it comes back to this point of anything that you do, you're going to fail at endlessly until something naturally starts to flow and also you just have to believe that what you're doing is right and actually if you need to make a decision because you are putting yourself under too much pressure you are putting yourself under too much financial risk and you're doing it too much for ego rather than actually for what the intention and the mission and vision was then you need to reevaluate your position always coming back to your ego and Am I doing this because I need to prove a point or am I doing this because actually it's needed? And sometimes when I take a step back and I think I'm, I am i can't do this anymore, I give up. Like <laughs> I've had this a few times where I've laid on bathroom floors crying, thinking about the world and thinking about how unfair it is and just saying, I, I'm not the person to do this. I'm not the right person to be here. And then the next day, someone phoning me and, and saying, oh, I've met this investor. I think they'll be good for you. I mean, literally that quick. <laughs> so trusting trusting yourself and your mission and vision, but also being okay to stop. Always know you can stop. And it is in your power to change the path and you have to make a decision though you have to make the decision to do it and then if you decide to do it you have to know that you're going to let go of all the things you thought were reality and change again and that's I think a really healthy skill set and the grit determination passion came back to this book right so whenever I feel really 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 like sad and really overwhelmed I read grit because then I remember that actually I have choices and passion and perseverance with this will eventually get me to a certain point even if that point is I've just opened enough doors for someone else to kind of come and get it to scale I'm like we've got to build these businesses or we've at least got to try and I think it's incredible that you've been able to build a business that's tied to your own personal experience and not just build a business but also write a book um and there's an incredible sense of achievement that comes when you're focused on a mission that you're solving for someone outside of yourself. 
But at the same time, although you have that personal experience, you were stepping into an industry that you've never worked in before. And that's not just tech, but women's health, right? Um, how were you able to navigate that? Like, what were the practical steps that you took to educate yourself and get yourself up to pace? Um, how did you connect with the experts? How did you tie it all in so that you could build a community or a brand that was actually backed by science, not just by your own personal experience, but by actual education? So I think that's why you need funding to build these kinds of technologies because you need experts and you can't ask people to do things for free which is why it also doesn't exist because it's hard to get funding it's hard to get the research done we did the research so the first year we spent doing a white paper which was specifically looking at the knowledge gaps within the women's health space um, that meant that we were able to work with academics with doctors so if you want to go into a space and you want to go into a space that is actually you can see is very fragmented identify who the experts are find a way of being able to create a project or a scenario where you can fund it with research grants or with funding or whatever it might be bring those experts around the table do the work and then come at whatever your answer is going to be from a position of insights, reports and science. For me, anyway, this was this was relevant because this was about us saying qualitatively, you can see the problems. Quantitatively, this needs to be looked at. What does exist? What research is there? What isn't there? And who are the best people in the world that we can bring together to help plug those gaps? So that's how we started or how I started kind of this research. I had the privilege of selling a business and had it, having capital. I had some time. Again, it's why it's so important to start to bridge this funding gap, because otherwise, if we're not building and doing the research or doing the work early doors, these technologies are just not going to get to market quick enough for people to really benefit from them. So for me, it was about network. And I do think network comes down to essentially everything and not being afraid to ask, know your limits, know where you add value, and then assume you add value in nowhere else. <laughs> and then work out who are the right people, best in class or closest to you, to be able to bring in. And that is applicable to when you're innovating in terms of concepting an idea, but right the way through to building a team, right? So it's exactly the same thing. You don't have to build a team of people that are there every day, but you do have to have a team of people who are working and understanding the complexities of this problem. But you can't understand even where the complexities are until you've done the work and the early stage research, which in theory, I could have written a book four years ago off the back of that research. But actually, I didn't think that it was helpful to write a book about all my smart, clever work. <laughs> it felt like it was important to start doing the doing and build the technology. Then what happened was we hit a complete wall with funding. So honestly, the book came because I just thought, if people do not get this and do not understand there is a bigger piece to hormones than just fertility and contraception, I'm going to write a goddamn book about it and I'm going to publish it and I'm going to shout from every platform about how important this is. I love that so much. I was mad. I was so angry that people could not see past women's bodies as a vehicle for fertility or contraception and the idea that there was no other space for technology than that. And it's not because there isn't an important space for fertility and contraception. Don't get me wrong. Very, very important. But that wasn't what we were building. We were building a mental health tool for women to reduce stress. And so it was just so 
frustrating, but I used that to drive me. And the book became a passion project because it takes a long time to write. It takes a long time to publish. So this was two years ago, right? And every day I would get up and I would do my routines. I would use the science of what I was learning. I would reduce my stress. I would I would use this science to help me get to the end goal. And that was being able to take all this complicated research and make it easy to understand and put it into a book that I could then promote alongside the app and a marketing asset, essentially, which, again, reinforces that Moody is something to understand. But one of the feedback pieces I often got from VCs, male VCs, was, I don't think women want to be called Moody. I was like, no, not by you. But they they want to understand it for themselves. That's literally the point. <laughs> so I I I found it really really frustrating that these men were like, no one wants this because they don't want to be called this. The point is that women helping other women understand themselves, not you as a man telling your wife she's moody. That's how we've ended up in this position, and you deciding that this technology isn't important and isn't valuable and isn't worth investing in is also part of the problem exactly that so that'll get you up in the mornings (laughs) (laughs) I was just about to talk about investors because obviously when it comes to building a technology company it's incredibly difficult because you need huge amounts of money you need the team that can do it so what has the journey been like and how were you able to get investors on board I know you mentioned that you had money from your previous business so you had a bit of a start but I'm sure you've needed tons ever since then I did self-fund a lot of my own work and research and and be able to kind of put myself in a position where I knew this was the right choice off the back of going okay if this really doesn't work out and I have lost my mind and I've just become a hormone obsessive for no reason whatsoever I'll go and get myself a job so you know I gave myself a year to just deep dive into it and really get under the skin of the research and and I really realized at that point that the reason doctors are not building this technology is they're doing the frontline work how is a doctor supposed to just give up their work on the front lines of this hormonal health crisis to then suddenly start building technology it doesn't it doesn't work so I felt like I again became the custodian of this kind of idea to a certain extent so that led me to the space of meeting a lot of women who were angel investors so we've actually not had VC money I've been turned down by pretty much every VC in the world I reckon (laughs) the rejection that's the other thing is you get so I'm so good at well sometimes I'm good at it when I'm in my last phase of my cycle, just before my bleed, that's the week where if I get rejected, I cry. But every other part, I've got very used to the rejection because it, it we are early and we're first to market and we're, you know, we're doing something very different. So, but angel investors, I, I just spend every time I go out, I am talking about what Moody is. And I am saying, if you know anyone that wants to invest in this future, put them my way. I am like shameless with asking people to connect me. Honestly, because I just got to a point where I was like, okay, if institutional money isn't the right route, how do we get this funded? Grants, grant funding. So there is a lot of money available. um, UK government grant funding, EU, which is another reason why, you know, having a European base was important for us because EU funding is really, really crucial for us. Um, The ability to understand your systems and operating systems and and building a lean business. So for us, it was going, okay, we need an engineering team. They're the most expensive part of this because that's where we're going to build our tech. 
And then that's what we fund. Everything else is a nice to have. I can do everything else. So I basically did about 25 jobs for the last three years um, using the science of hormones to help me be very incredibly efficient um, and a little bit of frustration just to get me up in the mornings. And then being able to say, okay, my, my superpower is hiring. So I think identifying people, it's the same with building a network for funding, is the same for building a network for um, hiring. Build a culture people want to be in. Build a business that you evangelize and you want to work in. And then don't let your ego lead because these people are taking risks coming into your business early. And so I think founders get a bad rep for being quite erratic and and very kind of all over the place and not very good leaders in terms of team. Your team are your biggest asset. And if you mess that component up, A, it's an incredibly costly business to build. And B, you just don't have a business because if you're not a technical founder yourself, you need to build those technical people into your business as though it's their business and give them equity and make them part of the journey in as co-founders so that takes time so again I had the privilege of my exit to be able to kind of support with that but I I basically stalked these women I mean I went to every coding meetup I dated hard I was like if you think about building a team like an early team funding and building a team is like dating which is probably why I'm still single I mean I literally don't have time to date anyone else so you you literally go out and you build relationships with people and then you get them to understand what you're building and you make sure that they're coming in with the right incentives and the right mission and vision and then you raise the money to support it which sounds in words very simple but it is about timing relationships network and funding and it's an art and it's not a science <laughs> because there, there, there's no explanation if I'm honest I've tried you know you can read every book the main thing is just don't build a business with crazily expensive overheads so one of the reasons that I I moved away from being in the US because it was just so expensive to be there um you know yes our audience a huge proportion of our audience are in America but being there in terms of salaries and building the business in that early phase wasn't the right thing for us because it was just too costly and we weren't raising enough money um, to be able to really do it. So be smart about how you raise money, how you build your network and then how you spend it will basically be the make or break of the business. And I really loved what you said about when you're hiring and the importance of leadership. One thing that I realise is that with new founders or people that might have just got into business straight out of uni or maybe didn't study but just started a business is that there is I mean there isn't any course for founders to do a leadership course like there's no like you you just have to do it and in the early days when I started my platform I think I brought in about two girls to join the team and I eventually had to tell them I mean they were part-time to leave because I just didn't have the time to support them. And I felt like I was giving them a bad experience of working with me and working on the platform. And that's when I saw the importance of some sort of like leadership training for founders or just like leadership support, because you don't know what you're doing. Like you're literally just hiring people. Yeah, that needs to be done. That needs to be done. But you don't necessarily know how to manage them effectively. And you've said one of your superpowers is hiring. So what's one of your... I guess, top tips in terms of someone who's making the first hire? I think just accept that 
the relationship, there are some key relationships if you're building tech that you need to build out and you need to build as a co-founding team. Then the rest of your team, you need to accept that it's a job. So I think people evangelize this idea of if it's not your life, then it's not. People have lives. So I really believe that actually if you can build a business where people can have a quality of life in their personal life and in their professional life because they have balance, but also don't kill yourself with pain or the person because they decide to leave your business. Don't invest in someone on the basis they're going to be with you forever. Invest in them because you want to and you need to because it's the right thing for your business. But also there is always risk that you're going to invest in someone that's then going to leave. Now, if you have a good culture and you have a culture where they feel supported and they feel as though they don't want to leave, they're less likely to leave. But being kind of frustrated, I think one of the things I see people make is, I invested all this time and energy into this person and then they just left and went to work for Facebook. And it's like, well, then cool. Then your business is being promoted at Facebook because someone at Facebook thinks that hiring someone from your startup was good enough for them to go into Facebook. See it as an added value. You know, every person that works in your business is a PR tool for your business. Do you want people to talk well about your business or do you want people not to? So changing this narrative around hiring people so that they're in your business forever is a crazy thing to do. Only investing in people if they're willing to stay with you for long extended periods of time, also dangerous. And being able to just be really transparent on what the business is in the upfront. Don't sell a dream of what this business is and then people feel disappointed. Be really transparent. Be really clear. These are the benefits of working in a remote team with mostly women. These are the kind of realities of what my expectations are. And also set very clear expectations and very clear systems that allow for somebody to deliver. And if they don't deliver, explain why they're not delivering. So again, there's a kind of really important aspect of communication and setting out playbooks of like, how does your business work? How do you work as a founder? What are your personality ticks? My problem, one of the big things and all my team will say this is, I love new things and new people. So I get really shiny and I will always tell people this, you're gonna be my new favorite person ever. But when you're not and there's someone new, don't worry, I haven't forgotten. I still love you. I just am a magpie for new shiny things. And so it's no reflection of our relationship or changes. Be really transparent about your flaws. Like, I don't think any person as a leader is a perfect person. You know, I can at times say one thing and do another, but hold me accountable. And also have a dialogue with your team where they can hold you accountable. Feedback, it's not always nice. It's really important. I think a lot of people veer away from it. They go, I've got all the stress and the pressure of running this business. You're just an employee. Therefore, you don't have the right to, you don't understand my life. So therefore, how dare you? The reality is they've chosen not to start a business because they want to have a reality of systems and structure. Fair enough. Give it to them. Don't expect them to guess. So my big things are hire a team that, is the process of hiring where you bring them into understanding the business and don't set them up for for a confusion. Explain how your business works, how you work as an individual and how the team structure works really clearly so that they make an informed decision about the business they're going into. When they're in the business, always have three months probations for you and for them, not because you think anything other than let's see how this works. And then also don't get upset if people leave because 
that's just the nature of work. And don't treat your business like everyone should be in it as though they're the founder, because again, that's not the reality of what they've signed up for. So going back to um, the discussion around you having burnout in your first startup, how do you avoid this now in your new venture? And what are the things you've put in place to avoid it? I live and breathe this science. So I um, I evangelize it because it changed my life. Like it literally changed my life, understanding where I was at, what this information meant, where my vulnerability was, tracking and logging and understanding emotional patterns to see when things are becoming too much and identifying before I hit the point that I can't get out of bed and I can't do exercise and I'm like not sleeping and I'm gaining weight and I'm miserable and realizing at that point I need a holiday or I need a break because your nervous system is not infallible and hormones and your body's function, brain body connection are fundamental. Taking time off weekends. I do not work weekends. It doesn't matter what VC you are. You're probably going to say no to me anyway. So <laughs> I'm not working on the weekend. Um, it's you know it, it's it's really important to have boundaries. Um, and I have very clear boundaries. I think I maybe could be better at bridging maybe my personal professional life, which is probably why I'm talking about it a lot in this episode. It's probably not something new content, everyone. <laughs> Current theme is working out how I actually don't um, not not understand that I need to, you know, be a bit more chill and a bit more playful. Um, and then understanding that there is also some things that are out of my control. And there's also a kind of relationship that I've built with routines and rituals around my mornings, which helps me and the app serves that. So there is, again, I sound like a robot sales tool, but it it really is. Another reason why I wrote the book was understanding the, the why of wellness. Wellness is not a luxury that you do when you burn out. It's something you build into your life because when you do it, you're just more efficient in everything. Yeah. I was saying the exact same thing to my um to my therapist the other day. I was saying to her the things that I do, I such as journaling, meditating, and some other stuff that I do, I kind of use it as medicine as opposed to a prevention tool. So it's when I've kind of burnt out that I'm like, okay, I need to journal and I need to do this and I need to do that to kind of get me back, as opposed to doing it to avoid that. So I totally agree with that in that you need to kind of build it into your routine and into your cycle. So knowing that women's bodies are different from men, should the way that we're expected to work be different? And should workplaces take this into consideration when creating policies? So there's some companies now that have policies around menopause and then you know they're thinking about the parental leave and things like that. And even the way that we approach entrepreneurship should it be different since we're you know we have two different types of bodies and we operate in different ways um and even from my experience I can see how stress has affected me recently and I'm so scared I'm like oh my god why am I changing so much can I really be taking on so much that could lead to stress whereas you know with the men it doesn't affect them in the same way so it's just so much that I feel that hasn't been adapted and changed to suit our bodies. Interestingly, I actually got asked this really irritating question about in an interview recently, which I think leads into an answer that I would I would say for this too, which is 
they were talking about, imagine a world where women didn't have periods. How would we all live? And I said, firstly, I'm not going to be the right person to answer this because that's horrendous and that's essentially an extinction event. Um, And secondly, it's not about different. For me, it's not about us saying, let's create more difference. Let's understand ourselves. Let's have more conversations around mental health which allow for workplaces to be spaces where you don't feel afraid as a man or as a woman or male or female or any person who identifies in any way to have a conversation about, I am under a lot of stress. I'm not working efficiently. I think this is a way that I can work more efficiently. Businesses are afraid of a lack of productivity and to a certain extent, all businesses are responsible for their bottom line. So there isn't going to be a world where suddenly everyone can just kind of, you know, take time off at different stages and and, and it's not going to be an adaptable space like that. But what I do think is really simple for us to change is saying, okay, my best way of working is this in this environment to reduce stress and be more productive, I will still get the job done, but I need to do it in this way. People having more flexibility about what's been a positive potentially, I know there's huge negatives with COVID and it's awful, is more conversations around working flexibly, working more remotely, being able to say, actually, because you're working from home doesn't mean you're sitting around in bed. And it's like, you know, not doing anything. It's like this kind of trust relationship between businesses and people based on productivity and output if you're not delivering and you're under so much stress and so much pressure you probably need to leave your job it's it's you know dependent on your job and the infrastructure and how long you've been there you know there's also a level of if you need to put financial systems in place that's why savings are so important that's why having buffers in your life you're not having a buffer and a savings account so you can just buy a house or do these big things. It's so you can protect yourself financially that if you hit a mental health crisis, which we almost all of us will, you have the ability to take some time. Because that's what really frustrates me is we've created a world where we induce stress, not reduce stress. And then we've created systems of accumulating money and spending it all rather than actually, you know, people having a conversation around savings or about a mental health buffer. And actually, let's create systems and environments that help people save money for their future. Yes, pensions, great. But also for the more immediate things of illness, critical health issues, you know, the things you can't foresee. So reducing stress, women and men having more flexibility to talk about mental health, but also understanding that mental health is hormonal and that there are systems and things in place for women that do change. And that it's important for us to be able to say and have the conversation to say, menopause, I need to be able to have more flexibility around work, motherhood, postpartum. I'm not ready to come back to work yet, but I can work from home. Cycles, PMDD, PCOS, endometriosis. I'm in chronic pain. This is a condition. Much like if I had an illness, <laughs> I need to. This needs to be a consideration. But but we're not there yet with with businesses actually wanting to have those conversations. So there's there's an education kind of change that needs to happen. But also set the set the benchmark. So for us, we have open policies. If why I want this business to be a success isn't just because I want the technology to be a success. I want to demonstrate that the model we've built around flexibility around listening and and can build a hugely financially successful business and a bottom line that works while also supporting the team in the process because that's also something that I would love to write about in the future. 
teams and processes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think that would be really good and very interesting. But essentially what you're saying is that everyone should be able to come to work and just say, this is what I'm going through and this is the support I need. This is how I can work better, as opposed to it being that's a man, that's a woman, and those are the policies we have in place for them. Um, Yeah, but everyone just being free to kind of speak about their mental health, which I think is so important. So knowing that health is a priority, um, especially in understanding how we show up for someone who hasn't made it a priority and wants to get themselves educated, what are the three steps that you would give them to helping them take the first steps in understanding their body and building a relationship with their body so that they can be more effective with their work or should I say just with life really the first step is just track what are the things that you're feeling the repetition the system the cycle the pattern know that it's not permanent so anything that you track you have the ability to affect positively But if you're not listening or learning or understanding, your body is a language, right? We've just not been given the dictionary for it. So the first port of call is just listening to yourself, listening to the moods and symptom changes. I would always encourage from a female experience to just look at your cycle and see if there are patterns that emerge from that. If there aren't, then being able to understand that there will be patterns potentially connected to your environment. So who are the people that trigger you in stress? What are the environments, the spaces, the things that cause you to feel not your best self? And just take time to understand that you have the power to affect change by building routines around preparation. You might not be able to change your ability. It might be your boss or it might be someone that you have to come in contact with. You can't change that person. <laughs> but what you can do is change how you show up in that environment to help reduce the amount of stress that you're experiencing, to help effectively address the fact that stress is the biggest chronic issue we have and it affects almost every facet of our lives. And that feeds in in varying scales to different aspects of, of happiness. So track it then understand it and then build routines and rituals around addressing it. And again, that's why we built Moody in the way that we did. It's a really simple tool, (laughs) digitizing essentially a journal. So what I found when I was first looking at all the research, which comes right back to what we were talking about before about experts and how you get into that, all of these experts were giving people paper diaries and telling them to journal all the time. I love a paper journal. I still have a paper journal along with Moody, but I highlight the key areas for me in Moody. And then at the end of each month, I reflect back on all the information I've inputted and I look at it and I'm like, okay, what am I going to do next month? Use your cycle, months, weeks. Try not to put things into an endless time frame. Put time frames around when you're going to review, when you're going to look at it and when you're going to start again. And that's why monthly cycles are a really brilliant routine and ritual system to be able to use. If you don't have a monthly cycle, literally just use the calendar month. So use the week use the weekend, use the month. Yeah, very simple, basic steps. So that's track, trying to understand. And then the last one was? Solve or address with routines and rituals. So address it and time, give yourself time. Yeah, I love that Moody's there because I think the first thing we tend to do is just go to Google and Google just brings up all these, oh, you're dying or you have this or you have that and which just throws you into panic. So um, for anyone listening do log on to Moody to find out what's going on. Um, So I've got 
two to three more questions left. Um, the number one book you'd recommend and why? I know you spoke about Grit before. Um, so what's the number one book that you've read that you think has helped you along in your journey, whether it be life or as an entrepreneur? I'm such an avid reader and I love reading. But interestingly, as we've had this conversation, one of the books that's kind of sprung to mind is Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert, which I'm sure you've read. I haven't, but I've heard so much great news about it. So I'm going to read it. <laughs> um, I, I think that Elizabeth Gilbert is a beautiful prose writer and she writes about ideas and, and reality and creativity in such a, a kind of beautiful way and actually a way where you suddenly go, okay, I'm going to try this creativity. I'm not going to be afraid of my creativity. I'm not going to be a starving artist and feel like my creativity always needs to be pained to be able to activate it. Um, I think, you know, as women being busy all the time and being stressed all the time is the only way for us to be successful is a, is a myth that's setting us up for failure. And I think that book, that was my takeaway from that book. Um, obviously it, you can read it in so many different ways, but I think that's probably a, a very seminal one and feels very right for some of the things that we've talked about today in terms of what has influenced and, and I come back to, what are the books that I come back to? And, and I would say Big Magic and, and Grit are two of the the books I come back to. Amazing. I always recommend Grit. <laughs> um, and lastly, what's next for you and Moody? So we have some really exciting things and launches coming up. Um, we have products coming, which are specifically to address hormonal health support, um, specifically around the areas that we can see are needed. We have features and programs that specifically support the areas we've talked about, which is more chronic conditions, not just phases of cycle, but also looking at PCOS, endometriosis, and just continuing to build this thing. And it's amazing when I get rejected endlessly by VCs, I read people's comments I read some of the things that actually I see that it's helping tens of thousands of women and hundreds of thousands of women across the life cycle of the, the, the app and I remind myself that actually I'm not doing it for VCs I'm doing it for those women well thank you so much for being on the show I'm sure that our listeners are so grateful for you to have created something like Moody which I think is such a game changer for women's health so thank you so much and it's been a pleasure having you Oh, it's been a pleasure talking. That's it for this episode of How I Made It Happen. If you have enjoyed this episode, please do follow, leave a review and a rating as it really helps others in discovering the podcast. And lastly, if you'd like to receive our weekly newsletter, you can sign up for that at fourworkingladies.com. Thank you for listening. Hey!